We're going to read 1 Samuel chapter 1, and we'll read verses 9 through 28 together. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. And she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord. I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. And Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. And they arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, not until the child is weaned, and I will take him that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. Then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, with three bulls, one ephah of flour and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And the child was young. And they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here, praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worshiped the Lord there. The grass withers and the flowers fade away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your word, the truth of your word, what it means to us, how it speaks to us. We thank you that it's from your spirit and we can trust it. And so we pray that your spirit would aid us now, aid me as I preach, and aid us all as we hear and listen. We might hear your voice today in Christ's name. Amen. You ever sat in one of those services? Where you know what's coming at the end and you sort of dread it. I grew up in fundamentalist Baptist circles. And I'm used to every service ending with an invitation, an altar call. And I've seen all sorts of altar calls. I remember one, my wife and I went to church in Red Bank, Tennessee. I had a fundamentalist Baptist church there. And they used to sing different songs at the end of the service during the altar call and this one particular Sunday, the brother began to sing, The Anchor Holds. And every word lasts three or four seconds. I mean, the anchor holds. 
just, come on, hurry up, man. He sang the whole song, and with about one phrase left, somebody walked forward. So what do they do? Just crank it up again. That happened three times. We heard the anchor holds three times, a super long invitation, hoping somebody would come forward. I also had the experience of meeting a gentleman named Bull Bramlett. You probably can find him on YouTube somewhere. Uh, John Bull Bramlett was an NFL football player who ended up joining Adrian Rogers Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Bull Bramlett became an evangelist. And when he preached the gospel at the end of every service, he went to every single person in the building and asked them if they knew the Lord. Every single person at that time, my dad's church ran about seven or 800 on Sunday morning. And he walked around when he finished preaching. Brother, do you know the Lord? Sister, do you know the Lord? Every single person. That took forever and pretty bold. The normal invitation is sort of quiet, right? You, you bow your head and close your eyes. And there's a number of questions asked to get certain responses. We want you to come get right. We want you to come get saved. We want you to rededicate. And, of course, a lot of that is done with good motives, right? A lot of it's done with, with great motives. And, of course, some seem like heavy manipulation of the first order in an attempt to get certain results. But one of the decisions that was often pushed for, particularly on the youth group scene, I grew up in the 90s, so uh, the youth groups were uh, pretty special in those days, and uh, the idea of full-time Christian service was always pushed, right? Who's ready to dedicate their lives to full-time Christian service? That still sounds pretty prestigious, doesn't it? I feel like I should get a uniform if I sign up for full-time Christian service. And of course, we all know, regardless of our vocation, it's the Christian's reasonable service to give his whole self to the Lord, no matter what we do for a living. But I thought about that as I came to this text, and I thought, I wonder what one of those dynamic youth group speakers would say about this text. Maybe if he were preaching this text today, he might make an appeal to the moms. Moms, come and dedicate your unborn children. Dedicate your little babies to full-time Christian service, because that's really what happens here. Samuel doesn't make the commitment, does he? Hannah makes the commitment. Hannah says, I will give him over to the Lord. And at the end, she testifies, I have lent him to the Lord. He will be lent to the Lord his whole life. She's the one who makes the commitment. In fact, she makes a Nazarite vow. A Nazarite vow for Samuel. Nazarite vows were typically made uh, for a short period of time. Uh, for some specific purpose, the person who made the vow was hoping to get an answer to prayer, typically. But Hannah says, no, this will be all the days of his life. He's a, he's a Nazarite for life. As a son of a Levite, a lot of people don't know this. They don't understand this necessarily. But Samuel was the son of a Levite. He comes from the Kohath family. Kohathites typically ministered in song. In fact, one of his grandsons is seen later as the minister of music under David. What a privileged position that must be have been. But Samuel was a Levite, and so he was dedicated to service in the temple for his whole life. Okay, no matter what. As an adult, he would go and be a servant in the tabernacle. But this, this Nazarite vow gives him a distinctiveness. 
He's going to serve even from the earliest of years, which was rare, which was different, what was peculiar about Samuel's life. And he would be a Nazarite for life. This is a sort of a remarkable act of piety, and it marks him out as an extraordinary servant of the Lord. And if you, as we've begun to study 1 Samuel in our church, we've realized Samuel is an important transitional figure. He's sort of the last of the judges, and he's the first to hold the office of the prophet. He's a very important person. He's one of those rare people where we have a birth narrative about. Right? This is all about his birth, and that's very rare in the Old Testament. Those people that have birth narratives written about them are special people. They're typically reserved to do some sort of great work for the Lord. And this vow even takes it up a notch. We know from the Old Testament how important vows were. We shouldn't make vows unless we are going to hold to them. And so this whole thing begins with his mother's prayer. One brother has said that Samuel was the fruit of Hannah's pleading long before he was the fruit of her body. And so that's where we'll start. First point in our outline is a muttered prayer. A muttered prayer. You, you know what I mean when I say a muttered prayer. There was no clarity to her words. Eli didn't hear words coming out of her mouth. It was the best she could do. She was, according to verse 10, in bitterness of soul. She prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Verse 12 says, She continued praying before the Lord, and Eli watched her mouth, and Hannah spoke in her heart. Only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. There's, there's weeping, there's a, a bitterness on the soul level, and a, and a depth of anguish. Nothing audible is coming out. There's just an intense heart cry that only the Lord could hear. It's really a, it's really a desperate scene. She, she is really distraught. And, and there's several things I want to point out about this prayer before we move on. There's, there's first of all, the idea this is a precious prayer. Verse 15, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I've poured out my soul before the Lord. I've laid everything out. I haven't held anything back. I'm just pouring out my soul. The prayer, as Matthew Henry says, comes from the heart as the tears flow from her eyes. There's a, there's a real deep fervency in her prayer that pours out an intense weeping and anguish. She's not hiding. She's at the breaking point. I'm ready to lay it all out before the Lord. I'm ready to pour everything, every desire of my heart out before the Lord. I'm broken. I'm afflicted. I need the Lord to look down and remember me. I need His grace and mercy. The phrase praying before the Lord, this is actually the first time in the Scriptures that phrase is used. The sense, according to the, the, the language scholar recognized uh, in the book of Samuel, is a man named Sumara. And he says that Hannah was fully absorbed in the presence of the Lord. She forgot. Eli is sitting at the door of the tabernacle. He doesn't matter. She's forgotten herself to some degree, right? I don't care who sees me crying. I don't care who sees my anguish. I don't care how sloppy I look while I'm praying. 
She's consumed. She's wrapped up. Praying before the Lord. The whole being is involved. This is a raw, agonizing petition. It's a precious prayer. And those prayers are precious to the Lord. If if you've read the Psalms, you've read many of these prayers. And I know, brothers and sisters, you've prayed some of these prayers. And the Lord loves them. The Lord hears them. We read in Psalm 145, The Lord is near to those who call on Him. He's near to those who call. He wants to hear your desperate prayers. Secondly, this is a purposeful prayer. It's a purposeful prayer. Did you notice how specific she was in what she asked for? She says, will you give your maidservant, in verse 11, a male child? I want a son. I need a son. James tells us that we have not because we ask not. Go to the Lord and ask. Oh, well, the Lord knows what I need. The Lord knows what I want. The Lord knows the desires. But he tells us we have not because we ask not. Hannah doesn't make that mistake. She says with a purpose, I am coming before the presence of the Lord to ask for a male child. Thirdly, this is a plain prayer. Hannah's prayer was very simple. As most of the prayers in the scriptures are, they're remarkably simple. She didn't use a lot of rich academic words. She wasn't trying to show her spectacular theological acumen as she prayed desperately before the Lord. It was a plain, simple prayer. She's not trying to impress God. She doesn't ask Eli, is there something I should do? Is there a way I should approach God here in the tabernacle? Is there a formula I need to go through? What's the process here? It's just a simple, tenacious calling on the name of God in His house. She just plainly asks a great God to rescue a poor sinner. And if you're, if you're unconverted in here this morning, you're, you haven't bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, this is all it takes. It's just a real plain thing. It's a, it's a plain calling on the name of God, recognizing you are a sinner in need of a Savior. And you plainly ask the Lord, Lord, redeem me, buy me back. Save me. Rescue me. I'm in a terrible situation. With a repentant heart and a simple calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, He will hear you. He will come near to those who call on Him. Fourthly, this is a proper prayer. Her motives were pure. Her motives were pure. Why does she want this child? She wants this child so she can give him right back to the Lord. Want him so I can give him back to you. James says we ask and we don't receive because we ask wrongly to spend it on our passions. Hannah prays that God would give her the son, and Lord, I'll give him right back to you. That sounds like a simple thing to say, but when you have wanted a son for your entire adult life, you've had to deal with the ridicule of Penina in your ear constantly attacking you and ridiculing you for not having a child. It's going to be a difficult thing to give this child back to the Lord. She says, no, it's done. I will. I will absolutely do it. It's also a prideless prayer. Hannah has a right view of herself. She knows who God is. She sees herself 
as a lowly servant in comparison to the Lord of hosts. Did you look at and notice in verse 11 how often she calls herself maidservant? If you'll indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant, remember and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child. She made no demands. The servants don't make demands. Servants don't make demands of their master. Servants plead. Servants ask for grace from the master. And she humbly asked the master to show grace and mercy. It was also a personal prayer. It was a personal prayer. She went into the tabernacle alone. She went into the tabernacle alone. She made a vow herself. She says, look on the affliction of your maidservant. Look at me. God, please look at me. Look at the suffering I'm enduring. Look at the affliction of your maidservant. See the, see the particular things that I'm going through. The things that I'm struggling with. And she says, remember me. Remember me. She, she doesn't say, Lord, exalt me. Lord, Lord, put me on your right hand or on your left hand when your kingdom comes. She doesn't say that. Lord, make me a great princess in Israel. She doesn't say that. Just, just remember me. Just remember me. Don't even make my son great. I'm not asking you to make Samuel great. I'm not asking you to make me great. Lord, just... Remember me. I want to be known. I want to be loved and cared for by Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. Just remember me. This is so personal. She pleads that God would know her. She speaks to God as a, as a personal and humble servant. Yet, there's boldness. There's boldness to speak on a personal level. Remember me. Think about my afflictions. And relieve me and save me and rescue me. And we need to pray like that, don't we? We need to pray like that. The Lord hears our prayers. And seventh and final, it's, it's a pious prayer. Hannah says, I will give him to the Lord. There's a resoluteness in there that is hard for us to see in the English language. Again, the Sumara, who's the sort of... Um, Language scholar par excellence in, in, this, in this book, he says the sentence has a performative force to it. There's, there's, there's something in it that, uh, in the way it's written, she's not just making an empty promise here. She's not just saying something. He argues that the sentence shows not only that Hannah promises it, but also that she has already given him by faith. It's done. Okay? He is the Lord's. I will give him to the Lord, and it's done. The way the Hebrew is structured there. Incredible. She's given him already by faith, before the child is even there. Can we really believe this woman again is going to give this child back when the time comes? This is going to be a difficult, difficult thing to do. But according to the way the scriptures are structured, she's already done it. She's already done it by faith. I will give it. This is a beautifully holy faith that God has put 
in Hannah's heart. It reminds me of the story of Abraham. And as you go through, uh, certainly, uh, Samuel, you'll see a lot of connections with the patriarchal period. If you want to, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 11. I'm going to read a, a brief section there from verses 17 through 19. And make a comparison here between Abraham and Hannah. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17, we see the faith of the patriarchs here. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. See, he's offering up the son of promise for him as well. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son. Again, another connection. To Hannah, of whom it was said, In Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. Abraham received a promise. He received a promise that he would have a son. And eventually, after receiving Isaac, he was called on to give him back to the Lord. That took an enormous amount of faith, right? You're going to kill your son. But his faith, he believed that God would even raise him from the dead. If God's going to ask me to kill him, I believe he'll raise him from the dead. And so he raises the knife to kill his own son and give him back to the Lord in faith. Hannah hasn't received such a promise. She, she didn't get that promise. Abraham received a promise, but Hannah didn't. In fact, Hannah is the one in our text who does make the promise. And very quickly she honors that promise and gives the child back to the Lord. Faith in both instances is the key instrument in both being able to give up something so precious to them as a child. See, there's a real genuine faith. This brother and sister Abraham and Hannah, they believed the Lord. They believed the Lord. They trusted the Lord. And their faith made them able to give up something so precious as a child. It's an interesting contrast. Isn't it? Abraham receives a promise. Hannah makes a promise. Abraham's ordered to give up his son. Hannah voluntarily vows to give up her son. It's really an impressive demonstration of faith here. Both Driven by faith. If we fast forward to chapter 2, we see Hannah singing the, the Hannah song. What's become known as Hannah song. Great sort of triumph uh, of grace and mercy. And she celebrates the sovereign God who has changed her fortune. Changed her life and given her a son. And, and all of us want... To sort of sing Hannah's song. Right? We all love the idea of singing Hannah's song. I want to sing the song of triumph. But nobody wants to pray like Hannah. Nobody wants to weep in anguish. Nobody wants to beg for mercy. Nobody wants to believe like Hannah in the face of insurmountable obstacles. I don't want to be in that situation. No one wants to make sacrificial vow like she made but we want to sing the song we want to sing the song of triumph no one wants to suffer the way hannah suffered no one wants to experience the bitterness of soul and the anguish that hannah experienced 
But we all want to sing the song. But brothers and sisters, we can't sing Hannah's song without praying like her, without suffering like her, without believing like her, without living sacrificially like her. We'll never experience the great triumphs of God's grace until we learn to pray like Hannah and live like Hannah. The muttered prayer prayed in faith is heard. The Lord draws near to her and it's answered by a mighty God. And that's our next point. Mighty God. Notice as she comes to the tabernacle, Eli is sitting there, but she doesn't come there to meet with Eli. Right? She doesn't acknowledge Eli. There's no conversation recorded. She doesn't come to the tabernacle to see him. She came to see Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts. And at first, it may seem obvious, well, of course she would turn to the Lord. That's what we're supposed to do. But the first sermon I preached on, on this chapter dealt with the early part, verses 1 through 8 of, of chapter 1. So please remember that the Lord closed Hannah's womb. It's stated two times in the text. If you read uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, you'll understand that Hannah had a very good understanding of God's sovereignty in her life. She understood and recognized the Lord had closed her womb. So does it now seem real natural to just turn to that same God and ask Him for this? See, Hannah suffered well. She suffered well. She didn't turn her affliction into an opportunity to blame God and burn with bitterness and anger. She didn't worry. She prayed. She didn't lash out at God. She prayed. She didn't complain. She didn't accuse God. She didn't waller in her affliction. She prayed. She didn't even try to fix it, which a lot of us try to do, right? We have a certain conundrum. The first thing we're going to do is fix it. I'm going to use my wisdom and discernment. We're going to get this straight. We have another example of that in the patriarchal period with Sarah. That's what Sarah does. Sarah's facing barrenness. What does she do? Here, take my handmaiden, Hagar. This is the way God will provide a seed for us. Sarah, Sarah came up with a plan. book of James tells us again, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Let him pray. And that's what Hannah does. This is the best thing Hannah could do. It's the best thing you can do in your affliction is turn to the Lord in prayer. And, and before we move on, we, we should understand, all of us will have difficulties, right? This is, this is a common thing. And it doesn't mean that we've done anything necessarily wrong. And as you look through the Scriptures, you see that God's choicest people, His best and brightest, the ones He uses the most, often suffer in the most intense ways. Not because of anything they've done. It's just the Lord's will. You could name any of those right now. But when we experience these trying and adverse events, these obstacles, we have to turn to Yahweh Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts has a faithful record of hearing His people. She knew God would hear her. She knew that He cared. She knew that He shows compassion. She knew the story of the Exodus. If you go back to Exodus chapter 3, 
Exodus chapter 3. Let me read chapter 3 verse 7 to us. The Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt. See, I've seen it. I know what's going on. It's not a surprise to me. And I've heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I've heard it. I've seen it. And I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up to that land, the land flowing with milk and honey. See, the Exodus was an answer to prayer. He heard their prayers. He heard their cries. But Hannah knew also that he was not only compassionate, he is an omnipotent, all-powerful God. The Bible often teaches us about God through the names that are given of God. Particularly in the Old Testament, we read of the name that God reveals Himself to Moses, I am that I am. And the Israelites say, He is. And that's where we get the word Yahweh. We see... Just the right time, the ram was provided in the thicket for Abraham. We say, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Yahweh Sitgenu, the Lord our righteousness. We have all these names that tell us about who God is. And the first appearance of the name Yahweh Sabaoth occurs here in 1 Samuel chapter 1. First in verse 3 and then... In verse 11, she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, O God of armies, God of angel armies, Lord Almighty, Lord of hosts. And given her circumstances, this is exactly who she needed. This is exactly who she needed. She needed a God that was unlimited in His power. Only a mighty God can open her womb. Give her the child that she desires. And he has all the power, not just to answer Hannah's prayer request. He has all the power to, to deal with your affliction. He has all the power to bring you out of the muck of life and help you overcome the obstacles that are in front of you. His power is limitless. Obviously, I don't know everyone's affliction in here. I don't know the degree of difficulty that you perhaps currently face. I do know Yahweh Sabaoth. I do know that there's no problem He can't handle. Right? If He is your God, He can handle your problems. Maybe like Hannah, maybe you want a child. In God's providence, we began preaching this. And there's a family in our church, a, a lady who uh, was single, laid into her life, into her uh, mid-40s. She had prayed for a husband and wanted a husband and... And God brought her a husband a couple of years ago. And it was a special thing. And, and then, of course, she wanted children. And that can be a difficult, time, a difficult thing to ask for late in life. She wanted children in her mid-40s. She asked the Lord, Lord, give me children. And just actually the week I preached this sermon, uh, a few weeks ago, she found out the state was giving her five children, including a brand new baby boy that was a week old. And uh, the Lord, Lord answered her prayers. The affliction of her life was, I've never had a husband. I'm never going to have a family. I'm never going to have any children. And the Lord says, oh yes, you are. Here's five, including a brand new baby. Be careful what you ask for, right? <laughs> Zero to a hundred in, in no time. 
It's a great blessing. And that woman can stand up and say, as Hannah says, for this child I prayed. For this child I prayed, and here he is. The Lord will answer our prayers. His power is limitless. How can this woman get five children? God's power. God's power. Maybe you're not praying for a child, but maybe you're praying for the conversion of a child. Maybe you want the new birth. Maybe you're praying for the new birth of a child. God, save my children. Whatever the circumstances are, whatever the issue is, you take it to Yahweh Sabaoth. It goes to the Lord, the Lord who can answer all those prayers. When we know how great God is, it encourages greater faith, which encourages us and prompts us to ask for more. He can do more than we could ever imagine. So call on Yahweh Sabaoth. Thirdly, and briefly, we see a misunderstanding. Eli misunderstands the situation in the tabernacle. We know from looking ahead in the text that though he, you know, he, he thinks she's drunk. Well, when you look ahead in the text, that's maybe not too crazy of a thing to jump to, right? Hophni and Phinehas are making a mockery of worship in the tabernacle. There's even sexual problems in the tabernacle precincts. They're stealing sacrifices. So it may seem far-fetched to us, but it wasn't far-fetched to Eli to think that someone could be in the temple, in the tabernacle, drunk. Although this is perhaps an indicator of Israel's leadership crisis. Later in chapter 3, we see Eli's eyes are growing dim. And I think that's a, a physical way of the author describing his lack of discernment. His spiritual eyes are going blind as well. But Eli can't discern between the heartfelt pleading of a, of a woman and drunken rambling. He lacks discernment there. But I think Arnold rightly points out there's an ironic twist in this encounter. The high priest, who should be full of wisdom and discernment, right, holding the most holy office in the land, contrasted here with this humble wife, of a Levite, one would, one would be treated with great respect. Eli holds the highest spiritual office in the land. And one would be treated with scorn. This was, a, this was a terrible social position to be in, to not have children. This is how we win. This is how God wins in the covenant, through the seed. And every woman gets to participate in that by having children, except you. You don't have any children. There's a, there's a sense of scorn. There's a... There's a social stigma attached with that. And yet Hannah is the one whom God remembers. Hannah is the one whose prayers are heard. While Eli, ultimately we see in chapter 3, his family will be rejected. And that prophecy, the word forever, is used twice. It is final and it is devastating. Eli's family is rejected. But the humble, barren woman is accepted. Hannah firmly but gently answers the question, the accusation. And she says, I'm just pouring out my soul before the Lord. Again, Samora says the phrase denotes not simply an inward state of one's heart or mind, but an involvement of the whole being. Hannah's prayer completely consumes her. Right? I'm pouring out my soul, everything, every ounce of my desires, my affliction, my difficulty. I'm pouring it all out before the Lord. I'm not drunk. 
I'm not drowning my sorrows with strong drink. I'm drowning my sorrows with tears of faith. That's, that's what's coming out of me. Hannah's response is so genuine, so striking and believably gracious that Eli's forced to reevaluate right away. Oh, I was, I was wrong. He changes gears and he blesses Hannah. In fact, this is the only instance in the scriptures of a, of a priest formally blessing an individual. He, he, he turns his attention straight to her. Verse 17, Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of Him. And Hannah's disposition, boom, immediately changes. Verse 18, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. The woman went her way and ate, and her face is no longer sad. This prayer is the pivotal point in the narrative. And this is where we see a major shift take place. One moment she can't eat. She's weeping in anguish, desperate over her situation. Her soul aches. She pours out her heart to the Lord, and the Lord hears her. And through the priestly blessing, comforts her, affirms her. And she leaves renewed, restored, full of hope and confident that the Lord is going to do a work. She's been in the presence of God and been affirmed by the priest. Remember, no obstacles have been removed. It's the same it was five minutes ago, right? She still has the same desperate issues facing her. Her faith has been strengthened in the presence of God. And she went into worship and prayed before the Lord and heard the words of the mediator the words of the anointed one. The priest was the anointed one. She leaves that place with a peace that passes all understanding. How can I get that? Right? I, want, I want that. I want that peace in the afflictions that I face and the times in my life when I'm, I'm desperate. How can, I, how can I get that? We, do, we have to do business with God through the only priest who can stand in our stead, the Lord Jesus Christ. Eli, as the high priest, he was the anointed one. He's the only anointed one. The other two offices are not in practice yet. There is no prophet. Samuel will be the first in the official prophet status there uh, for the nation. Okay, and There was no king. So the only anointed one, and anointed is the word Messiah. That's where we get Christ. The only anointed one is the priest. And he speaks with authority. He says, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. This is not, these are not well wishes. Man, I sure hope it works out for you, Hannah. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, God will grant you these requests. He is the mediator between God and man. And brothers and sisters, we have a better mediator. We have better priests. We have a better sacrifice, better promises, and a better covenant because of the Lord Jesus Christ. Eli poorly represents the powerful and authoritative mediatorial work of Jesus Christ. 
But it is a picture for us. And like Hannah, we need to receive the words of comfort that our high priest offers to us in our times of affliction. He speaks to us. The Lord Jesus Christ speaks to us. He's our mediator. And He speaks words of assurance, blessing, and comfort to us. He's spoken to you. The high priest, the mediator, has spoken to you. He has said things to you. And, and do you believe them? That's the question. Have you received Christ's words by faith? Do you believe what he says? Cast your cares on me, and I will give you rest. The high priest, the mediator, has spoken those words to you. So when you're in those difficult situations, do you believe the words of Christ? He says, Lo, I am with you even to the end of the age. Do you believe Jesus Christ is with you in those most difficult and trying circumstances? He said these things. He said, I am the good shepherd. He said, My peace I give to you. He said all these things. I'll never leave you nor forsake you. These are the words of Christ, the mediator, spoken to you, believer. Spoken to you. When you hear the words of Jesus, do you receive those words by faith? Do you believe them? Hannah left different because she heard the words of the mediator and she believed them. And she walked out of there with a whole different disposition. Okay, I can eat now. I got a smile on my face. I'm ready to go about my duties. Prayer and trust in the mediator changed her. She was changed. Have you been changed by the words of Christ? Every Lord's Day when you gather and you hear Christ speak to you from the preached Word, it should change you if you believe the words, if you believe what Christ says. Prayer certainly does change us, and prayer also changes our circumstances. In the mystery of God's providence, He has said the effectual, fervent prayers of a righteous man matter. They avail to much. So in God's strange providence, He allows our prayers matter and too often we think they don't matter our prayers don't matter and it's not just our prayers we lack faith in a lot of the things that God asks us to do right we lack faith in lots of things disciplining our children I'm just not sure it's going to work you got a snotty nosed little two year old running around doesn't listen to anything you say got to persevere the Lord says it will work discipline your children he says to do it. He says how to do it. Listen to the words of the Lord. Attending worship regularly. Never forsake the assembling of the saints together. Is that really going to have an effect on me? Week in and week out. Generous giving. The Lord wants us to give sacrificially. That leads to the next point in our outline. That's mundane practices. Does God really care to work through these simple and plain disciplines of life? You know, Hannah's prayer here was really just a sort of a normal response to difficulty, right? I mean, we all would say, well, that's what you're supposed to do, right? When you, when you have a face a, a difficult circumstances, you're supposed to pray. Gordon Ketty says, but there's a fragrant normality about Hannah's turning to the Lord. I love that phrase. Fragrant normality. Something beautiful, sweet, and precious 
about just praying for the normal things. Lord, as we get in the car to travel, would you keep us safe? The Lord doesn't hear that prayer, does He? We pray it too much. Lord, we thank You for this food that You fill our belly with. The Lord doesn't hear that prayer. We just pray it so much. There's, there's fragrant normality in those daily disciplines of life. Continue to persevere in those things. There's a, there's a sweet simplicity in her simply going to meet with God in His house to share her burdens. It's normal, but we shouldn't take it for granted. It's normal, but it's special. We prayed this morning for our physical health for some people. The Lord hears those prayers. The Lord wants to hear those prayers. In verse 19, it shows Hannah acting on her faith. Yes, she most certainly believed God's blessing was obtained. She walks away confident, right? She's changed. But that didn't negate her responsibility to act. She still had things she had to do. God will do His work as I go along doing mine. She has spiritual duties and so she worships. And she has marital duties as well. And in fulfilling those duties, the Lord answered her prayer. See verse 19, They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. And the Lord remembered her. She does those things that she's supposed to do. And the Lord remembered her. It's important, it's important to remember. She'd done this many times before. And there had been no fruit. Right? She'd done all of these things before. And yet she never got pregnant. But that was not an excuse not to continue in the duty. She had to faithfully plod along with the duties of life, whatever they were. Every year, year after year, they go up to offer the sacrifice, to eat the feast, to make an atonement for sin. And week after week, she carries out the conjugal duties of, of a wife with no fruitfulness. That's the way it is with us, though. We, sometimes we just got to put one foot in front of the other. We just got to keep going. Do the spiritual duties. We don't see enough fruit. We don't taste enough joy in those things sometimes. But we have to put one foot in front of the other, carrying out the disciplines of the spiritual life. We've got, we got to come to worship. We have to give. We have to love. We have to take the supper. We need to read the Word. We have to discipline our children. All the things that God requires of us. We continue, even when we don't see the fruit. We persevere because of faith, because God has promised to bless those things, and He is always faithful. He's always faithful. He will bless you with fruitfulness. Of course, the phrase, the Lord remembered her, obviously, it isn't saying that God forgot about her, and all of a sudden, oh yeah, I'll give her a child. His memory wasn't stirred here. It simply means that at the time, God decided His actions were going to fulfill His promises to Hannah. Now's the time. I'm going to give her a child. It's similar to God remembered Noah. right? And He caused the floodwaters to recede. And God always remembers. He always remembers. He's always faithful to His covenant and the promises He gives to His people. Well, fifth, I want you to see a monstrous offering. 
This is something you probably wouldn't recognize in just a bare reading of the text. But after weaning Samuel, Hannah and Elkanah make their way back to Shiloh to fulfill the vow that Hannah had made. And she doesn't bring a small offering. She doesn't bring the minimum offering. I want you to look at uh, verse 24. Start and well, yeah, verse 24. Now, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bulls, one ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. This is a massive, massive offering. In fact, your translation may say something different. Most English translations have amended the text to say a three year old bull. That they've changed it from, from three bulls to a three-year-old bull because this seems absurd. It, it's such a, a massive offering based on sort of the agrarian standards of the day in the ancient world. Three bulls is ju- it's just too much. Scholars can't sort of fathom generosity like this. So they say that, that, that can't be what it meant. Let's change the reading in part to fit what we think is sort of realistic. Again... The language scholar here says, oh no, this is exactly what it says. Three bulls. In fact, it says an ephah of flour, and the typical offering that was given with a bull sacrifice was three-tenths of an ephah of flour. So the fact that there's a full ephah of flour probably represents that, hey, that's almost a full ephah. There's three bulls, that makes sense in accordance with the typical offering. It's really an incredible and generous gift. And some people speculate, well, maybe it's because there were three of them. You have Hannah, Samuel, and Elkanah. Maybe that's why there were three bulls. Samuel maybe is three years old at this time because he's been slowly weaned. So maybe it's three years of sacrifices for him. Is it, is it really unreasonable to think that Hannah and Elkanah would be so generous? I mean, you do know why they're there, right? They're giving their son to the Lord. So is, is three bulls this sort of un, uh, unbelievable gift? Sometimes I think scholars lose sight of the fact that they're giving their child, their only son at this point, to the Lord. Samuel's the chief gift. He's the greatest, most significant sacrifice they're making on this trip. It's not the three bulls. It's sort of absurd to think three bulls are too much to give when they actually give so much more. Again, imagine. It's hard for us to imagine. I know certainly the men in here can't imagine this, but it's, it's even harder, I think, for modern women to understand all your dreams realized. How important it was socially to have a child. It's one of the reasons in the New Testament were often exhorted to help widows. Because if you're an older lady... In the ancient Near East, without a son, you're the first one to die in a famine. There's no one looking out for you. There's no one protecting you. It's very important. Of course, sons are valuable in an agrarian economy especially. So there's all sorts of things here. And she's going to give him back to the Lord. What she's hoped for and she's prayed for. This is a great, monstrous sacrifice. The generosity of this family really shames us, doesn't it? It shames the modern church on the whole. Many of us, certainly this is 
extreme sacrificial giving and, and sort of financially what they're giving. But, but they gave up their son. They gave up their son. Lots of us in here have, have children. Have you given your children to the Lord? Have you, have you laid them on the sacrifice, on the altar to the Lord? Lord, hear my children. I will lend them to you. Whatever you have for them to do, take them and use them for your service. If it means they go overseas, they go overseas. If it means I see them once every ten years, I see them once every ten years. What can they do for the Lord? That's the sacrifice. That's the sacrifice that really shames me. I'm sure some of you as well. And of course, it's a picture of the greatest sacrifice. Hannah's not giving up near what the father gave up when he gave up his beloved son, his only son whom he dearly loved, the Lord Jesus Christ, for our sakes. It's a great, great gift. And it's not just us giving our children, right? Romans 12 says it's our reasonable service. For us to give our whole selves. You're responsible to give yourself to the Lord. That's only reasonable. Based on the offering that the Father has given through the Son. He's given you the Lord Jesus Christ. Without whom you would be destined for an eternity in hell. And He's given this rich, beautiful gift in Jesus Christ to you. You must give yourself. You must lay down your desires for His. And do what you can to serve the Lord all the days of your life. We've all been called to give ourselves to the service of the Lord. So, if you never raised your hand in one of those youth events, if you never came forward and committed to full-time Christian service, I'm officially commissioning you now for full-time Christian service. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word this morning. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank You for Your goodness to us. We thank You for the the truths in this Scripture. We do pray that we would pray more earnestly, more passionately, that we'd give more sacrificially as a result of our engagement with this text this morning, that we would see also the beauty of Your sacrifice, the glory of You giving up Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for us, and that we would be stirred, that we'd be stirred to lay down our lives Give up our children, all for the service of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.